Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. I am technical producer Will Erskine, warming up the mic for Scott. Today on the show, a tornado touched down in Barrie, Ontario. Global News is on the scene and we joined them. There is more ground to cover around the former Kamloops Residential School and more work needed for reconciliation. General Jonathan Vance is charged with obstruction and reopening the Canada-U.S. border to non-essential travel. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. First a pandemic and now a tornado. Our thoughts are with Barry and surrounding area. Be strong, we're with you. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, get back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. Jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, on the website, send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And let's bring in Morgan Campbell, journalist with Global News and is with us now. Morgan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Morgan, first of all, what can you tell us about uh, injuries? Uh, thank goodness nobody was killed. It's hard to see, uh, you know, how that happened, considering the devastation and the pictures w- w- that we've seen. What can you tell us about the people oh, involved? Yeah. It, you know, it's absolutely remarkable. I heard someone down here describe this as, uh, you know, as, as resembling a bit of a war zone. And, and they're not far off. Remarkably enough, um, 11 people were injured. Uh, I just actually got that number from uh, Barrie Police. Four people remain in hospital, are expected to, to recover. Um, but, you know, you, we, we've seen the carnage on TV, on social media, and to know that, uh, that nobody died, I mean, is, is, is short of a miracle. Um, these people are, yes, going to have to rebuild and, and pick up their lives, which is which is absolutely tragic and, and tough. Um, but you know, eleven injuries is is uh, when you see the. I'm sorry, I'm stuttering because yeah. the devastation here is just so. It's it's so large. It, it's it's uh, it's just a tragic thing to see. So give us some sort of sense of how many homes are involved here and sort of the swa- uh, the, the, the path that this tornado took and, 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 and how long this devastation lasted. Well, they're saying preliminary reports, and again, let's, let me just say this is all preliminary information. So this tornado touched down for, I think they said, 15 seconds. Um, and to see this kind of devastation from 15 seconds, we know a large number of homes have been impacted. Um, a few different numbers have been thrown out there. The premier is uh, coming uh, up here to Barrie right now to tour the area. We're being told that he will be arriving within the hour. I don't know if you can hear the helicopters uh, uh, kind of flying around the scene. They're, they're up there trying to survey the damage and, and take a look at, at uh, what everything is. Now, the damage goes from, you know, some overturned vehicles to two-story houses leveled to one story to houses collapsed to roofs gone. Um, so it really is widespread. And it's and it appears to be in this one section in um, off of Prince William Drive near Coronation Parkway here in the south end of Barrie. 
Uh, and has it seems like quite a large area. Have they secured all of this area? Are people whose homes are or live in that area are they allowed to access to them? Um, is the are there homes that are in the area that are fine? Yeah, there are homes in the area that are fine. Now we do know that people have been going in today to in in the ones that are still safe uh, going in to retrieve some belongings. Uh, I read somewhere that there was a man who slept in his vehicle overnight after his house being destroyed because he didn't know where to go and he wanted to keep an eye on his home that was completely exposed to the elements. So uh, I think at this point, honestly, the damage is so vast that today they're just trying to kind of take a bit of a snapshot of what it actually looks like. I just ran into the mayor of Barrie, um, on the street here, and uh, he's going to make some remarks after Premier Ford visits and give us, he's expected to give us a bit of an update, not just on the damage, but also the community support. I'm at, um, it's a, it's a uh, Catholic school, St. Gabriel, and uh, it is remarkable to see the amount of people here providing clothes, food, water. I mean, Domino's Pizza has set up a tent giving first responders, everyone food. You're seeing this community come together. And, uh, you know, that in and itself is is kind of a, a nice news story to see, you know, so many people supporting one another. I'm not even lying. Like, there are people showing up with coolers of food, with toilet paper, with, uh, with paper towels, cleaning supplies. Uh, I see first on site is here as well. You have police, fire, paramedics. Everyone's on scene trying to offer a bit of a helping hand because, as you can imagine, this is quite a trying time, especially for those impacted um, and and don't really know where to go or, or don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Morgan, it, it sounds like uh, that it's really sort of ramped up into survival mode and, and recovery mode. It was fascinating watching uh, the images that we saw of people literally coming out of their homes while they were videoing what was going on and discovering this from the, for the first time. And people just kind of walking around the neighborhood in shock it seems now things are really becoming mobilized and and people are really uh are stepping it up to help these people and you know what it's incredible too because it seems like everyone has a purpose if that makes sense like everyone's walking kind of with that stride of determination you know i have a job to do i'm going to do it how can i help where you need hands and that's very much this community Years ago, I used to work in um, Barrie as a reporter, and I can tell you that from my own lived experience, I live not very far from this this, uh, this portion of the city. These are people who are very uh, community, goal-oriented people who, you know, open their doors to one another. I was on my Facebook page last evening, and a number of my friends here we're offering up bedrooms to complete strangers. And I think that that really speaks to the type of people who live here in Barrie. It may be a bedroom community to Toronto, but it is very much a tight-knit community with a bit of a small-town feel. So I'm really not surprised to see all of this support here, just given what I know already about this community. 
So, uh, you know, something like this happens, as I said, everyone's in shock. What happens next? I guess, obviously, once we hear from the premier and the mayor, we'll know more from an official standpoint. But Mm -hmm. moving forward, Morgan, what happens next? Well, quite literally, they need to pick up the pieces and rebuild. Um, There will be a lot of uh, questions about uh, whether or not people received alerts fast enough. Uh, There's a little bit of controversy there. My colleague Shalima Maharaj is working on a story about that, as it appears that the alerts for the tornado actually um, had gone out a, a bit too late. Uh, in one case, that city councillor, the video has kind of been all over social media, who hid in her basement, came up and found that the roof was uh, was yeah. missing from her home. Um, she said that she didn't get the, the alert until she was on the front lawn. Hmm. Um, and if she hadn't been notified by her father-in-law, who was out getting gas at Costco, that she wouldn't have known to get down to the basement. So I think we're, there are going to be a lot of questions about the alert system. Um, I think that there was uh, really just a tweet sent out. And I think, too, there are going to be a lot of questions about the construction of these new bills. I mean, we've seen this, uh, this happen uh, on Canada's west coast when a tornado hit down there a lot of questions about how these homes are being built and whether or not we need to take a good hard look at the building code and look at potentially amending it to make homes more safe during these uh, adverse weather conditions morgan campbell is with us up in barry journalist for uh, global news uh, great reporting morgan thanks so much uh, be well stay safe uh, and uh, pass on our best wish- wishes to all up there with uh, with moving forward after this uh, unbelievable tragedy morgan thanks so much for the time thank you for having me let's bring in anthony farnell chief meteorologist with global news he is with us now anthony thanks for the time hope you're doing well i am doing well yeah thanks for having me on from your perspective, Anthony, and, and you saw this, obviously, with maps and such, what happened? How did this all, how was this the perfect storm? Yeah, well, we knew there would be uh, severe weather. Yesterday was, was a day that we were watching, especially in that area, just to the south of Georgian Bay, around Lake Simcoe. What we didn't think would necessarily happen would be these supercell storms that were out ahead of the cold front, and they spun up very quickly, uh, Morgan mentioned the uh, warning, the alert system, whether or not people got uh, <laughs> notified in time. And I, I do think that is a, is a big question. And uh, the new radar out of King City, which was up and running, showed this circulation and this rotation in these storms uh, well ahead of the 3 o'clock or 2.30 touchdown. So uh, that's something that's going to have to be looked at. But that uh, was quite the event. And uh, those same cells continued to progress off towards the court, the lakes, and likely drop more tornadoes along its path. Uh, any idea, uh, as at, at this point, Anthony, how long this tornado was actually on the ground, how long this event would have lasted? Yeah, well, it didn't last long in any one particular area. It was definitely moving. Uh, the damaged swath, which is something that uh, they send a team out, it's Western University, the Northern Tornadoes Project, and they're working in association with Environment Canada. So uh, tornadoes are, are kind of unique, where you, you can't tell how strong those winds are 
in, during the event, you have to send a team out and check the damage after. And there are about 28 criteria that they look for from roofs being blown off to tree damage, uh, to bark being removed, um, soil displaced. So there's a lot that that these teams look at, whether it's in a, a more urban area like we had yesterday or a more rural setting, which uh, is often the case where it's just farmers' fields and maybe some forest that's impacted. It's amazing. Uh, that's one of the first things I noticed, Anthony, when we were seeing some of that footage that people were, were shooting that, uh, that were actually on the ground there, the homeowners there, was uh, just the way the debris was pasted up against a brick wall. Um, you know, even some homes actually moved off of, of their foundation. And, and also, uh, I think something you often see in tornadoes, uh, trees of a good size literally stripped. So it's like the trunk and maybe a branch or two. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. <laughs> I say this quite often. Wind doesn't kill anybody. It's what is being blown around in that wind that creates yeah. missiles, basically. Whether it's a two by four or a tree branch, or uh, in some case even insulation coming at two hundred kilometers an hour can can cause some damage. So uh, cars without windows, uh, and homes as well, entire sides of walls. I was there yesterday evening surveying some of the damage myself, and uh, just incredible to see. One side of the street so heavily impacted, and then about less than 100 meters away, the homes are fine, and they have some of their neighbors' debris, including household items, on their front yard. So it's just uh, the power of nature, and, and the twisters in particular, these little micro vortices that, that can damage one home so severely and then basically spare the next. It is bizarre. So obviously this, as you mentioned, uh, this cell continued right across towards the Peterborough area and, and such. We're not sure of obviously the, the damage uh, anywhere as extensive as it has been in Barrie. What does the future look like? We're sort of sitting in that uh, that type of weather where you feel like there's a storm that could brew almost at any time. Yeah, that, that was exactly the case. There was a lot of heat and humidity. There's been a lot of rain in the area over the last few days, and, and just the atmosphere was primed. All you needed was, was that trigger, and in this case, it was a cold front. So uh, these supercells, there have been tornado outbreaks in that area in the past, and it's, it's kind of known as Ontario's Tornado Alley. Uh, Why is that, there. Anthony? Why is it that area? Do we know? Well, there are a couple of, of things at play. One is it's a convergence zone between uh, Lake Simcoe, Georgian Bay, Lake yeah. Huron, all of these bodies of water that are generally colder than the surrounding land. So that can just alter the wind, create veer and shear just enough so that it spins these up where that wouldn't occur maybe a little bit further south or obviously out over the water. So it just focuses the energy, and that goes all the way back to 1985, which is a prime example with that yeah. F4 over Barry. Uh, so what's the weather look like for the next uh, day or so in southern Ontario? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of rain coming, and that is uh, I'm on to the next big weather maker, and already some flooding occurring in Windsor. That may get into the Hamilton area overnight tonight, including the chance of flooding. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a rainfall warning issued from Environment Canada, as though they're not uh, busy enough. So that's that's the big picture. Uh, thankfully, that heavy rain is not going to make its way up into Barrie because I saw over 100 homes that either are missing their roof or the shingles are, are, are gone, and, and you just don't want to see downpours uh, in the next few days until those roofers are able to, to get out there and, and at least tarp up. 
Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Anthony speaking, of course, of the tornado up in Barrie. Anthony, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care. Have a good weekend. The memories and the pain that has been triggered by the discovery of these graves uh, is significant, but it's also been a moment for all Canadians to understand that this is our shared history, but it's also part of our present. We recognize that it's just a beginning. Uh, we will continue to be there to allow uh, First Nations communities uh, to grieve, to heal, and to move forward uh, by identifying and responding to these uh, tragic discoveries as, uh, as they need to. Uh, we we certainly re- heard the news conference yesterday uh, coming out of Kamloops. A, a specialist in groundbreaking uh, or ground penetrating radar says there are still, still nearly 650,000 square meters of land uh, that is yet to be surveyed before the total number of uh, unmarked graves is confirmed at the site of Canada's uh, residential schools. Uh, this over and above the 200 uh, that they believe uh, that were buried. Uh, underneath that Kamloops residential school site. Let's bring in Patty Doyle Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor with Dalhousie University and with us now. Patty, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Thank you for having me. What did you take from the news? (laughs) I am, thank you. Uh, What what did you take from the news conference yesterday? Sadness, anger. When I heard that there was still so much more to search, I felt very sad, and I listened to the elders speak, and uh, it just broke my heart because she was speaking the truth and what happened at residential schools, and I'm I'm still just overwhelmed with sadness and anger over what's happening. So I'm Even, scared, actually, in some ways, that they're going to find, you know, maybe 200 more bodies. I don't know. So I was very upset about it. Obviously, uh, the Indigenous community has known about this and has tried to get us to listen for an awfully long time. Uh, obviously, now obviously now uh, we are, or hopefully most of us are anyway. Um, uh, but this is still obviously incredibly difficult for them to go through. Uh, yes. Is there any, any relief in the fact that at least the story's coming out? Well, I think part of um, like what we've talked about at Dow and with my uh, Mi'kmaq sisters and friends <clears throat> is that we know that, spiritually speaking, the children are reaching out to us and telling us that they need to come home, and those stories need to come out. And and as you know, as you noted, we have known about these stories for a long time. We have known about uh, residential school students who didn't come home, and uh, the difficulty um, has always been in getting the records. And part of the difficulty as well is that you know, in my mind, um, when kids went to residential school. Um, the Catholic Church and the federal government took over custody of those kids. So they may have felt that they had no reason to tell the parents and the extended family because they no longer had any legal rights over their kids. I don't know. Um, But we've known about them. I mean, when you have a child that's been taken away and that child doesn't come home, then you begin to wonder what happened to that to what happened to my child, what happened to my seven-year-old, my 12-year-old, my 10-year-old. So, 
it's very difficult. And um, now that it's coming out in much more public way, um, and like I've said before, you know, the RCAP report in 1995 talked about residential schools and the lost children, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. There's, you know, a whole chapter on missing children and, and children who died. Um, Gord Downey's uh, work on Wenjek um, and the, that child who ran away, and he took that uh, story and his book and his music all across Canada. I think what's happening now is that there's, the numbers are overwhelming. Um, as the numbers keep getting higher and higher, and the fact that it's such public knowledge now, I think we mentioned the other day, this is getting international media attention, and it's not going to go away. That's, it's not something that's going to be hopefully a blip, and uh, people forget about it. I hope they remember, and um, we're going to find, you know, there's, a, there's so many schools in Canada, and residential schools, and they're probably going to find more kids. That's just the way it is. And uh, I hope Canadians, you know, as Justin Trudeau said, you know, this is part of our past, but it's also part of our present. Hmm. Um, obviously, yesterday, calling for the federal government and the church to release attendance records, anything that would help uh, identify mm-hmm. what is going on or, or the children at this site. The prime minister was seen on a news clip saying they would release the records. Are you confident? Yeah. Is it that easy? No, it's not that easy. He's in all the research that I've heard about and what I've done myself, getting those records w- was really difficult. And even when I was helping my mom, um, when students, um, former residential school, school students got the compensation packet, the common experience payment, they had to write to Indian Affairs to get their records. And I know trying to get my mom's records was very difficult. And we finally got them, the attendance records. Um but that's what the residential school survivors had to do to prove that they were there. It wasn't like the government goes, oh, we knew you were there, so we're going to give you the common experience payment. It's like, oh, you've got to get the records yourself and prove that you were there, which was kind of ridiculous. So it's been very difficult. And even in Halifax, even with the archdiocese, you know, there's been limitations placed on what records can be taken out of that Um archives. So it's not as easy. It's not going to be as easy because even during the um, Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the Department of Indian Affairs was very reluctant to release records to the researchers. So um, I hope, I hope that um, Prime Minister Trudeau is correct and ready to take action and release those records so that we can start identifying the kids um, and find out everything that happened at the residential school. Um, and then one of the first things that the federal government's got to do is stop taking residential school survivors to court and just release the records that they have because they're fighting um, the St. Anne's residential school survivors in court in Ontario, and uh, they won't release the OPP records from the electric chair and the beatings. So they've just got to do it. Like, how are, you know, they have a fiduciary relationship with First Nations people. They're supposed to look out for the best interest of First Nations people, and they're supposed to release those records to us, and it's our information. So they've got to do it. How else are we going to move forward unless the federal government and the churches are ready to open up their archives and open up their libraries and open up their files so that we can see what's going on? 
uh, you know, the prime minister made it sound yesterday like we'll open up the files. Here's the filing cabinet. There you go. Go ahead. Um, but how long is Not it going to be exactly as if they're all stored in one place? How no. difficult is it going to be to collect all of this information? Well, I think it's in different places. I know when I was doing my own research and when I looked at those research um, documents, I was at the uh, library in Ottawa, the Canadian, like the the big library, and they had documents there on the residential school and um, like for all of them. But they were limited to things like, um, oh, how many cans of paint they bought to paint the outside of the school or, you know, how many bales of hay they sold or, you know, things like that. Um, The attendance records, from my understanding, when I was working with my mom, was that they were held by the government. And like I said, it took a long time to get those records. And, you know, it's not digitized. They're all handwritten. So it's going to be difficult, and they're at different places. The church will have some. The federal government will have some. Um, I'm sure that the provincial archives have some records, especially if there were, um, I know in Nova Scotia, there um, there were indigenous kids buried away from the residential school in unmarked graves in um in different towns in uh, Nova Scotia. And so then you'd have to look for the records there in um, perhaps individual cemeteries and uh, maybe vital statistics. And there's also privacy concerns. Like, it, you know, if I go down to vital statistics and I say I want to get my uh, best friend's uh, marriage certificate, they're not going to give it to me. I mean, so if I go down and say I want to see what records do you have on the Shuby Residential School? They're not just going to hand it over to me. So that is um, you know, one of the things that we did when we worked for RCAP was said that the federal government has a fiduciary responsibility to hand over these records and not place limitations on them. And, um, of course, the privacy concerns have to be considered. Um, but if a um, say if a chief and council want those records for their own community, they can get that permission quite quickly, and then they can bring those records to each First Nation community if they so choose. But it is a complicated process. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> uh, Patty, let me ask you your opinion on uh, Manitoba's new Indigenous minister uh, facing backlash for his first press conference yesterday. Yeah, and um, and you know, speaking of getting off on the wrong foot. Um, but he said something that I think a lot of Canadians think. So let's dissect that. He's, and, and I'm sure. paraphrasing here, but he said sure. something along the lines of, you know, when these were started, and, and we talked about this with other, mm-hmm. I may have talked about it with you, but I've certainly talked about it with others that are in similar situations as you are and, and academics on this issue that, you know, uh, the minister said, you know, at the beginning, they thought they were doing the right thing. And as if that somehow qualified it. And, you, you know, it's what you say after that that really makes an impact. And, and I guess you right. could say, well, maybe Hitler thought he was doing the right thing, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your, th- yeah. Um, your thoughts on what he said and how he didn't finish that thought correctly. Well, I think that what he said yesterday was um, totally horrible. Um because it shows that he has limited, if not, if no understanding 
of what happened at the residential school. So you could say, well, the federal government had the responsibility to educate Indigenous kids on reserves. They created a partnership with um, churches to run these residential schools in order to give the kids an education. It's just that the from that point on, it just went... Yeah. When they say that they are going to, you know, continue until there's not a single Indian left in the body politic, and they say that we're going to remove, you know, take the Indian out of the child and outlaw our ceremonies, languages, um, culture, as they did in the residential schools. And the other thing that um, I was thinking about when he made those comments was that the educational process at the residential schools was very poor. Like, there wasn't, um, I would say there wasn't a strict academic um, curriculum there. Um, It was mostly based on work, um, like cooking, crocheting, knitting, sewing, laborers, because all they expected from us as Indigenous peoples, if they were getting us ready to go into society, as he said, that we could only be domestics or laborers. So they actually thought, and this is written down too, that they, we weren't smart enough to have a regular education. So they, and then when you look at what happened, uh, so there was poor education processes. There were unqualified teachers that taught there. We had lack of health care, lack of uh, nutritional food, beating, sexual abuse, medical experiments. How does that fit into the good intention? It doesn't. So the, when I think about that, what he called this good intention, is that I don't think there ever was a good intention. It was to get rid of us. And that's what they tried to do. And, you know, all you could do, all you could expect from us was to be a domestic or a laborer. And um, that was it. There was nothing else that we could do. So I don't think there were any good intentions in starting this. This was cultural genocide from day one. And if the minister uh, in Manitoba would go back and read the government records, um, he would see that <laughs> the cultural genocide was very explicit in in their development of these schools. So he, you know, and I've heard other people say that too. Oh, there were good intentions. It was a different time. And um especially because the churches were involved. But, you know, as Justin Trudeau said, this is still, you know, we're still dealing with these issues in the present. And one elder told me one time is that what the residential schools did was academically or educationally was destroy our potential. Because, you know, they had a certain attitude about us that we weren't smart enough. So they just, we were subhuman to them, I think. And, uh, so all of this that happened were really, you know, crimes against us, crimes against humanity, crimes against us. And um, I don't think there were good intentions at all. Uh, Patty, I still have record. I still have a few people who send me notes and yeah. and their articles about how great the residential schools were. Oh, yeah. uh, I've even got one with a series of pictures of all these indigenous kids with big smiles on their face oh, uh, yeah. all together and whoop, 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 and all this sort of thing, and and saying that uh, the disease was prominent at that time. Yep, that's right. uh, there's yeah. lots of great things that came out of this. What do you say to those people? I want to know what great things came out of it. 
<laughs> that, you know, when people say, oh, there were great things that came out of it, it's like, okay, what were they? What were they? That's what I want to know. Um, what I've only seen are people totally disconnected from their culture and community, people who are were still having flashbacks and nightmares about what happened to them 70 years ago. Um, and like I, I think I said the other day, there, you know, some people, if you read Rita Joe's autobiography, she, um, who's a noted Mi'kmaq poet, Order of Canada, very talented, who passed away about 10 years ago, she wrote her autobiography and she talked about her experience in residential school. And even if you even if you don't think about all the bad things that happened, the medical experiments, the beatings, the sexual abuse, all that stuff, you're removing children from their homes and then very rarely allowing them to go home. So I don't know what good could come out of that. If that was such a great thing, we would do that with every kid. Let's take them out of their home and put them in sort of a high and make them live there and not be allowed to leave and not speak to their family. If that was such a great thing to do, then why aren't we doing it? Patty Doyle Bedwell with his Native Studies instructor, uh, Dalhousie University, talking about the uh, news conference yesterday, giving us more information uh, onto those that are still buried within uh, or underneath a Kamloops residential school site. Patty, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yes, you too. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating column in the uh, Globe and Mail the other day. More than, and this is by Andrew Coyne, more than leadership or policy, it's a conservative temperament uh, that's put uh, putting voters off, saying that it is uh, not so much about the leader, but the Potter, uh, party itself that just does not have a winning culture within it. Let's bring in Bradley Melton, or Metlin, rather, consultant with Upstream Strategy Group and with us now. Bradley, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Yeah, it's great to be in Stage 3 Ontario today. <laughs> yeah, really. And, and cheers to everybody for that and making it yeah. here. Uh, Bradley, you know, it seems whenever we hear the word Conservative Party, uh, somehow it's talking about some archaic view of climate change or LGBTQ community issues or abortion issues that we seem to have dealt with, dealt with uh, a while ago. Yeah. Where is the Conservative Party today? I've called it your grandfather's Conservative Party for a while now. What's the problem here? Well, I mean, I think that is a perception that a lot of Canadians have about the Conservative Party is that it's a little old, a little white, a little antiquated. And I think that's something that the party's aware of. I think that's something that Aaron O'Toole, who is the current leader, is aware of. And I think he's trying to make inroads and make changes. You mentioned climate change. He put forward a rather comprehensive climate change policy three months ago, and you can squabble about the details there. But, you know, he is talking about that on LGBT rights, uh, Q plus rights, rather. He put uh, a really fantastic video out that discussed the history um, of queer people in Canada, and he put that out for Pride Month. And then on abortion, he said he's pro-choice. So he's making all the right steps in an attempt to modernize the party. But of course, whenever you have somebody who's attempting to do that, there's always going to be some sort of lag, right? So there's always going to be some delay in the membership and in the public's perception of the party as they're trying to make a change. 
That being said, that that staunch base still has to look at the reality and, and the fact that, uh, you know, they're, they're letting the opposition dictate their narrative. Of course. I mean, but this exists in other parties as well. I mean, if you look at the Green Party right now, they're currently facing a bit of an implosion because their base is in a civil war. If you look at the NDP, um, what would be classed as their base, perhaps people on the far left, they say things all the time that are maybe a little out there, maybe a little loony, um, but it doesn't get the press coverage as much as when somebody who is perhaps a social conservative says something about their views on abortion, and then, you know, it blows up. And I, I, I am not inclined to say there is a double standard there, but I think this exists in every party pretty much. Um, and so I think the, the base uh, holds a lot of these issues dear to their heart, and they want to advocate for their beliefs. And I can't begrudge people for doing that. But I think if you look at where the party is, where the mainstream of the party is, it's moving forward and it's moving in a more palatable direction. That said, I do think Andrew Coyne's column in the Globe and Mail, I think he makes a, a few good points. I think, you know, they have been dragging their feet on a lot of these issues for a lot of years. If you look at uh, the United Kingdom, if you look at the Conservative Party there, they have been talking about climate change for over a decade now. They had uh, David Cameron was the prime minister, the conservative prime minister there from 2010 to 2016. When he was the leader of the opposition, he rode his bike into uh, work at, the, at their uh, parliament. So, I mean, if you look to that party as an example, I think then certainly the conservative party in Canada is probably a decade behind. But that's a great example. Maybe they should be moving in that direction. That is a diverse party with a lot of faces that reflect the diversity of the United Kingdom. Look, Canada is a multicultural country. That's a problem for the Conservative Party, certainly, but it's also a problem, frankly, for the Liberal Party. If you look at who the main speakers are for that party, it's very white, it's very male, and I think all parties could do themselves a service by trying to look more like the people they represent. Uh, well, I think we all would agree liberals are where they are because uh, there there just seems to be a lack of lock. Uh, there seems to be a lack of opposition of any strength. Where are mm-hmm. all the young conservatives? You, you you talked about that with your reference to the UK. Where are all the young conservatives? Where are all the ones that don't wear gray suits and have slick back hair? Well, I mean, they exist certainly. I mean, if you if you go to a, a conservative party convention, they certainly exist. Um, there's always kind of this perception that as you why aren't they out, why aren't they out front and center on the party, Bradley? Why are That's why aren't they? Should. I mean, they probably should be. There's some promising candidates who are running for their nomination right now. I think of someone like Melissa Lansman um, in Thornhill. She is the candidate and she's uh, trying to be an MP and she's a very promising voice in the party and she's younger. Um, I think there are people out there. I think this is a process that has to happen. Look, I mean, if you look at the opposition, they're not spring chickens either. Uh, like the the folks in the NDP, they're not super young. Uh, if you look at the liberals, Justin Trudeau has a young energy, but he's yeah, but they 50. all have moment. They all have momentum, Bradley. So we can't compare to other parties that are that are you know for the most part uh, at least resonating. Whether you know, and the conservatives and in uh, Aaron O'Toole or not, and and I believe with what Coyne said, I don't think this is a leadership issue. I think this is the party itself. Right. I, I, I agree with you in the sense that they need to they, they need to modernize. They need to start making these issues kind of moot. So when you talk about, for example, LGBTQ plus rights, that needs to kind of be a non-factor. They shouldn't be talking about that anymore. When you talk about abortion, you shouldn't be talking about abortion anymore because those are 
in the eyes of the vast majority of Canadians, settled issues, and they need to be settled issues if the party is going to be successful. So I think they're, they're again, they're moving in the right direction. I think Aaron O'Toole needs to do more of that, and he needs to do more of that quickly. He needs to come across less angry, perhaps, more personable. I think he's starting to do that. This is all a process. I mean, a week in politics is a very long time. I think of, you know, think of 2011. The NDP were polling at 18, 19 percent. And over two weeks in an election campaign, they surged 12 points ahead. So there is certainly possibilities for people to reexamine. I don't think people are paying all that much attention to politics right now. I mean, we're just getting out um, largely of a lot of lockdowns and restrictions throughout the country. People are trying to get back to some sense of normalcy and enjoy their life. If we are smacked with an election campaign in the next month or two, I think people will tune in more. And that's really when they're going to make their value judgments about the people leading the parties and the parties themselves. Uh, so obviously, man, many have said polls are one thing. The campaign itself is another. We certainly know where we are going into the campaign and, and where the conservatives are. And, and, and it doesn't look promising. What do they have to do during this campaign? Wow, well, I think to some extent a poll can say, whatever you want to some extent. It all depends on the sample and all the metrics and whatnot. I think the polls show they're still within reach of the liberals. I mean, I think this has been, I think we're writing the obituaries for the conservative party a little quickly um, in the sense that, you know, they're only what, five points, eight points back, depending on some of the polls. That's not that far back. And I think naturally people are going to return to them to some extent. I think they need to start talking about, issues that are important to Canadians. And that includes cost of living, that includes housing, that includes the environment. And I think they're going to do that. I think they are going to present policies that Canadians care about. And it will be a discussion about whether those particular policies resonate enough. And as I was saying, Aaron O'Toole is the the person at the top, and he needs to continue on the path to being inclusive, to being likable, to being personable, and not being so angry. Because that's what this column, I think, is all about. It's, it's this perception that conservatives have a bit of a chip on their shoulder. They're defensive. They're quick to, to mm-hmm. retort when someone makes a critique. And those are valid things to say. I think if the party mellows out a bit and shows a more lighter side, I think, I think that is a recipe for success. Bradley Metlin with us, consultant with Upstream Strategy Group, talking about a uh, Global Mail article from Andrew Coyne, More Than Leadership or Policy, It's Conservative Temperament That Is Putting Voters Off. Bradley, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. All righty. We've certainly talked uh, at length on this show in the last several weeks in regard to uh, what is going on in the Canadian military. Uh, Yesterday, we were just talking about how uh, lawsuits within the military uh, in regard to misconduct and such, up 170% just in the last six months alone as we are starting to have these conversations. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor with uh, both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And with us now, Jonathan, or sorry, Christian, thanks so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am indeed. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure to speak. 
So, uh, first of all, uh, what are what is the significance of these charges? Obviously, uh, we've seen these issues in the past. There was a report at two, in 2015. We're waiting for another one as a result of all of these allegations uh, that have come forward. The fact that uh, Jonathan Vance has been charged with obstruction of justice, how significant is this? So, on the one hand, it's significant, and on the other hand, it is not significant at all. So, let me explain. So, it's significant in the sense that I think there was a public hunger for someone at the senior level to get charged. And so, I think there was um, some interest by the National Investigation Service to lay a charge of some sort. Uh, There may have also been encouragement, perhaps, from the political level to lay a charge, because, of course, this shifts the narrative conveniently uh, from the minister and the government to Jonathan Vance, and it does so ahead of the election, and the court date might well fall after the election is um, all done. So in that sense, it's significant because it's extremely rare for senior military leaders to be charged on the criminal code uh, by the National Investigation Service um, and uh, and convictions are even rarer. And generally, the National Investigation Service doesn't lay a lot of criminal code charges to begin with, in part because they have relatively limited capacity uh, for investigations. Explain so, this. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, but I would also say that the, that it is actually not significant in the sense that obstruction is about as mild a charge as one could possibly sort of conceive under the circumstances. So it carries, uh, it's either an indictable offense or a summary conviction. Chances are the Crown will proceed on a summary conviction. Um, It carries a maximum penalty of two years less a day. But really, if the Crown proceeds on a summary conviction, uh, either General Vance is going to plead out and he'll get a suspended sentence, or the judge is just simply going to dismiss the charge to begin with. What's interesting here is, Normally, these types of charges come um, uh, with a breach of trust charge because, of course, he's a senior public official in a position of authority. And so what's puzzling here is that we're not getting the breach of trust charge. And so that could either be because the Public Prosecution Service of Canada felt that there wasn't a reasonable chance of conviction, or it could be that the National Investigation Service felt that they were out of their depth on this investigation. They laid the charge that they felt they could under the circumstances and that there is a parallel ongoing RCMP investigation, possibly um, by, um, at, at the federal level. Um, and that could, so that could possibly result in a breach of trust charge. And that would, of course, be a much, much more serious charge. It carries up to uh, 10 years and it would, if convicted, entail the loss uh, of the uh, general's pension. So, um, so that's why I'm saying, yes, it's significant on the one hand, but it's not significant in terms of the type of charge that was actually laid. How can we be following this narrative for the last several months, and even if you go back as far as 2015 in the initial report, and the defense minister come out of this scot-free? I mean, would that should that not be the first person to pay the price here? Well, so what I'm interested in is whether the investigation by the National Investigation Service was completely and entirely independent, or whether there was, shall we say, encouragement from the political level to ensure that a charge is laid so that the government can say, look, the the people are being held to account and Mm -hmm. to deflect from uh, the government's own um, uh, challenges around this particular file. So I find the timing 
Um, so before a possible impending election call um, is, uh, um, is, is interesting timing, shall we say. Um, it may as well be an entirely independent. Um, uh, so, so I think those are the broader sort of questions that, uh, that, we, we, that, that might be interesting to have answers to. Does this resonate with the pub- uh, public? Will this be an election issue? So I think the government is trying very hard not to make it an election issue. And insofar that it might be an election issue, I think the government's narrative will be is that the system is working, people are being charged, and that this is the military's problem. It's not the government's problem. Um, they've washed their hands. They've, uh, they've invoked sort of an, another outside um, uh, review of the process and that the minister is committed to making uh, change. Uh, so... Uh, we will see to what extent uh, that will get traction. Um, the t- files around defense that tend to become election issues tend to be associated more with kit that the military buys uh, rather than with human resource issues. And so um, I think that'll be an interesting question, whether the opposition believes that there is traction to be gotten here, um, and if so, how much mileage they are actually able to get out of public opinion on this particular issue. But, you know, I continue to insist that this is an absolutely critical issue, not just for the Canadian Armed Forces, um, but for the government as a whole, because, of course, um, uh, these types of misconduct issues uh, aren't just a problem in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, the uh, survey of, of the annual service federal employees has shown that um, uh, the people reporting these types of problems are just marginally lower in the federal government overall relative to the Canadian Armed Forces. So this is a problem that is broader than the Canadian Armed Forces. It runs throughout um, the federal civil service. And from that, we can infer that it runs throughout Canadian society and Canadian um, organizations, large and small. And so I think uh, the Canadian Armed Forces is also a litmus test for Canadian society at large for the Kenyan forces to lead by example and to ensure that it can set the precedent that the rest of society can follow in terms of uh, rooting out these uh, uh, the, 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 these challenges that uh, every employee uh, should always be able to um, uh, work uh, to, to enjoy a workplace that is safe uh, and free from harassment or misconduct of any kind. We've only got a little bit of time left. Are you surprised, uh, Christian, that these are that these cases and, and lawsuits up 170 percent within the military in the last six months? No, I think what we've seen is, um, I think, more of a license for people to report. I think this was to be expected, just like when uh, Operation Honor was introduced in 2015. We saw an increase in the number of people who reported. People now feel that they can sort of report without sort of immediate repercussions for their career or within their particular unit. And so you would also expect that more broadly, um, people would now feel emboldened and empowered uh, to seek the sort of remedies both within the organization um, as well as external judicial remedies uh, to the um, challenges um, that they would have faced um, uh, while serving in the organization. So I think this is a uh, this is a lag effect and it will likely persist for the foreseeable future. But the silver lining here is that uh, it, it is one indication that the culture, at least around uh, reporting and seeking remedies through the rule of law, um, is, um, um, is, is, is progressing. Um, and I think that in itself is an indication that the culture is changing, however gradually and probably too slowly. 
Christine Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, and have a lovely weekend. You too. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Great news today. Ontario enters step three of our COVID recovery. Step three of the reopening plan focuses on expanding indoor settings and further bolstering outdoor. Provincial officials said masks and face covering protocols will remain in place in indoor public settings throughout step three, as well as physical distance requirements. Basically, it means with restrictions, indoor dining is allowed, church services, sporting activities, and events with capacity at 50%. Casinos, museums, aquariums, landmarks, galleries, fairs, amusement parks, capped at 50% indoor capacity, the same for concert venues, cinemas, and theaters. Outdoor sports activities capped at 75%. Canada has about 79% of the population 12-plus vaccinated with one dose, 53% with two. The next big challenge for Canada moving forward will be vaccine hesitancy, which could see us peak any time now. Although I think most are surprised, we have hit the numbers we have. That's what happens when everybody else is getting something, and we're not. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. During a call with the premiers last night, the prime minister indicated the target to reopen the border with the U.S. is the middle of next month. So fully vaccinated Americans could make their way north. And if current vaccination trends continue, as well as other public health markers, then we could be ready to welcome fully vaccinated travelers from all countries by early September. We're inching closer to 80 percent of eligible Canadians who've had one COVID-19 vaccine and just over 40 percent have had both shots. Case counts are falling as are hospitalizations. But some concerns are being raised about the uptick in cases in the U.S. That's being attributed to the highly transmissible Delta variant and a significant amount of vaccine resistance among some Americans. We should hear more about the reopening plans early next week. Tina Trajani, Global News. Let's bring in the mayor of Niagara Falls, Jim Diodati. He is with us now. Jim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, doing well, Scott. Nice to be on your show. So what are you hearing from an official status? Because we keep hearing we're talking about it or we're waiting for this or we're waiting for that. Is there any sort of official line? What are you hearing? Well, nothing official. It's obvious that they've put out test balloons just to test the public appeal and, and how people feel about this and if they their opinion is good. And, and I think then they're going to refine the details. And I understand they've been in discussions with the U.S. I do regularly uh, speak with U.S. Uh, congressmen and senators and, and mayors along the border. And I know that I can tell you that the border city mayors in Ontario do have a call scheduled on Monday with Minister Blair. I'm sure we're going to get some more details. And this is what we've been asking them. Share the plan with us. It's been very, very frustrating when businesses are trying to prepare. They need to hire employees, bring in inventory. You need to know the plan, and then people can be prepared because it's not as easy as flipping a light switch. People, a lot of them haven't worked in a year, year and a half. Some have changed careers. Some have retired. Some aren't coming to work. Some are getting served and don't want to work. So it's not as easy as turning on a light switch. And I can tell you one of the big challenges will be human resources problems, getting people to work. So we need we needed the plan. Apparently the plan's being vetted. It's being slipped uh, out and uh, leaked a little bit. We're going to hear all the details next week. And, uh, and, and I think it's about time. We're ready. 
Whether you're talking uh, to mayors or other politicians, are the feeling is the feeling on both sides of the border, uh, at least within the border towns, is it the same? I mean, uh, does everybody want these uh, open along the border? Oh, yeah. Well, and this is the part that we've been saying, and there's a lot of miscommunication uh, and confusion around the messaging. We're saying do it gradual. Start with fully vaccinated people. And we're not saying for everybody and anybody, just come one, come all and cross the border. We're saying if you've, you're fully vaccinated, you receive both your doses and you can prove it, then that's what we're suggesting. And I mean, even the federal command table has been saying, as a matter of fact, that Dr. Isaac Bogosh has been saying all along that it's a very, very low risk if you're fully vaccinated. So we're saying follow the science of your own health panel and allow people fully vaccinated. I don't think anybody has an issue with that, but there's miscommunication. Some people think we're saying let everybody and anybody. We're not. We're saying do it in a safe way following the science. What about uh, proof of vaccination, Jim? Any any thoughts on that? Because there's been lots of chatter over federal passports, provincial passports, what we need, what we don't need. Is is what you get from the pharmacy or the clinic with that uh, code, is that is that good enough? Do we actually need a physical card? W- what about for you guys along the border? What does that mean for you? Well, that's a great question. And, and the consternation is around the U.S. is not big on any kind of a vaccine passport. They're, they're very much opposed to it. And in Canada, we've got this Arrive Canada app. And I can tell you, for anyone who's actually tried to use it, it's very difficult. It's cumbersome. And I'm not really certain it's going to be successful. You know, I've already talked to people who are coming back from the U.S. and they're trying to do it. And unless you're really proficient with your smartphone, really proficient, know how to input the data, know how to update it, know how to input your pos- your negative test, it's not easy. So that's going to be the challenge. And I think that's why we've had the delays. I think they're realizing better off to get near the herd immunity numbers than have to worry about trying to prove it. And in the U.S., they've got CDC cards. I've seen them. Uh, you, and you can get vaccinated just about anywhere. And of course, of course, Canada, we're going to use this Arrive Canada app. Regardless, I've got copies. Our whole family, we've all been fully vaccinated. We have copies of the receipts. I've got hard copies, and I've got copies on my smartphone, and we're doing the Arrive Can app. I'm making sure we're ready for when that border opens that we don't have any paperwork to hold us up. That was my next question, Jim. Are you worried that it's going to be, you know, we all know what border lineups are like. Do you think it's going to be chaos once we try to figure out who's been vaccinated, who has not been vaccinated? Yeah, and that's that's the problem with having to have proof of vaccination, and I believe that's why the holdup has been on the Canadian side, not the Americans. So the Americans have been ready to go. They've been wanting to go for quite a while. Matter of fact, I know Chuck Schumer's been saying to our ambassador, and he's been saying to a lot of the Canadian politicians, you know, we may unilaterally open up. So we may open up the U.S. border to Canadians, regardless of what you guys are doing. And that's a bit of a risk for us along the border, because that means... Canadians will take all their leisure money and spend it in the United States, and we won't get a reciprocation of the Americans spending their money here. So that's a very real risk. We're already losing the majority of the summer. And in tourism, it's very dangerous. You know, here we live by the Pareto principle, better known as the 80-20 rule. 80% of the revenue comes in 20% of the time in tourism. And for us, it's largely between July the 1st and Labor Day. 
And if we go to mid-August, we've even missed the August 1st civic holiday. We're down to one holiday, Labor Day. So we've already uh, put ourselves at a huge disadvantage. Coming, The fact that we've come off a horrible year, it's been, I can't tell you how much of a struggle. And for border towns and tourist towns like Niagara Falls, tourism's like oxygen. It's necessary. 40,000 people, 40,000 count on tourism to feed their families. And, and it's unfortunate that, you know, the weight is really, really hurting them and the restrictions has been difficult. We get safety first. We agree with science-based decisions. But the federal command panel has been saying all along, it's very safe if you're fully vaccinated. So I, 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 hopefully people can understand the frustration that we've been waiting for as we're going through the politics of this. So, yes, the border weight, back to your original question, during the best of times, borders are a challenge, especially since 9-11, where you have to show your passport or your Nexus card. And now if you got also show proof of vaccination, it's just going to exacerbate already the challenges that we experience typically on the border, which turn a lot of people away from the border because they can't be bothered with the hassle of the land crossings. Are you concerned that Americans won't want to come across for that very reason? You know, maybe their opinion on vaccination is different. They don't they don't want to get the two just to get in or or whatever proof you have to uh, provide to get over. Are you concerned that that will keep Americans away? Well, yeah, everything's a concern, especially in Niagara Falls, where we're Canada's number one leisure destination. And typically, 25% of the visitors here come from the U.S., but they represent 50% of the revenue. So half of the revenue that comes here comes from the U.S. It's been shut off for a year and a half. We're not 100% sure when it's going to open up. And yet, we're concerned that they may have decided to go elsewhere for their vacations and other destinations for their, their leisure spending. So definitely, because the Americans represent the number one uh, tourist that come here d- despite or outside of our domestic tourists. And yeah, it's definitely a concern. We don't want them to decide to go somewhere else other than here. So you had something we think about all the time. What's the recovery going to look like? And and I'll say, you know, we are definitely resilient in tourism. We've dealt with 9-11, H1N1, mad cow, currency fluctuations. We deal with a lot of things. We always bounce back because that's what we do. But there has never been a challenge like this. This is a tsunami, and the rest are just little rainfalls. And dealing with this one, I'm really concerned because there's a lot of people desperately hanging on. They're into their lines of credit. They're, they owe a lot of money. They're stressed. They've got a lot of challenges going on. I'm, I'm really worried because the money they make during the summer will carry them through the winter until next season. And a lot of them haven't made enough money yet to make it. Uh, obviously, Niagara Falls has has weathered a lot of storms, uh, and as as being the attraction it is, it's certainly not going to going away. It will return at one point. But any idea how long it will take for businesses to recover from this? I mean, presuming that next season is normal, you're going to get the the back half of this one. It looks like, but presuming next season is normal, how long does it take to recover? Does it take at least a full year? Well, you know, it's, that's a great question, and it's a question we're all asking ourselves, and, and nobody knows the exact answer. The best we can do is, is a good guess, and based on last and, and past challenges, which have not been anywhere near this challenge, and, and we're guessing, and all the experts are saying, probably two to three years 
to recover to this, assuming we don't have any other waves, assuming we don't have any other major challenges, any other international disasters. We're thinking two to three years under best case scenario. And, and the other frustration we're dealing with, I mean, even the casino is still not open. Uh, now this weekend, starting today, we're finally into the third step of the provincial lockdown where things are opening up. Uh, the frustration before, so I'll give you an example. Last weekend, last Saturday, the city was packed. But Sunday, it, because it was a sunny day, Sunday was quiet. And the reason, because if you're here with your family eating on a patio and it rains, which it's been doing a lot lately, you cannot go indoors. So your option is to go sit in your car or go home. So that's been a real frustration. And now we're going to open up the inside. So every weekend we're learning more of what people are willing to do and what their habits are going to be. So this will be an interesting weekend. Now that the insides are open, now that casinos can open now, our casinos will not open until next week because they're a huge employer. 4,000 people at our casinos in Niagara Falls have been unemployed. Well, they're calling them back, and it takes time. So how many people will come back, and how long will they be here, and how much will they spend? And So it's one of these experiments that you won't know until you do the actual experiment, and each time you do that, you learn more, and then you can foresee the trajectory. But our best guesses at this point are two to three years for a full recovery. Talk a bit about staffing, because we've certainly seen in the tourism and, and hospitality uh, how difficult it is, uh, be, it is for them to, to bring staff back and, and get back into it and such. Uh, obviously, you're a city that, that depends on this uh, all year round. How, how difficult will it be, or, or are there enough there to, to get back up and get it running? Well, that is going to be the biggest challenge right now, and I've been on a number of calls and a number of Zooms, and human resources staffing is the number one issue right now facing the entire hospitality industry, period, not just tourism, but hospitality. And we're, we're very grateful to the government for all the programs and subsidies, and I want to be clear. They've been great. They've done all that they can do so that we don't drown. But, I mean, it's just enough to keep your head above water. And that's the situation. But the CERB, as an example, it's a double-edged sword. In one end, it's great because it's what allowed people to survive. But the downside is some people have become comfortable getting these checks and not working where a lot of people have made the decision they're not going to start working until the CERB runs out in the fall. Mm-hmm. So that's a big problem when you've got. We've certainly heard some of the Jim. We've certainly heard something some on that uh, anecdotally. But is is that actually the case where yet people aren't coming to work because they're still getting paid to stay home? Yes, and even though they can make more money working, and certainly with tips, some of them said, you know, I'm just gonna. It's been a stressful year. Yeah. I'm just taking the rest of summer off until kids go back to school. Uh, we're just gonna we're gonna gather and we're just gonna hang out as a family, and we're not going back to work. And we made the decision, and and I know this firsthand as a fact. Uh, I can tell you, the hotels trying to get chambermaids is very difficult, and they're paying in the twenties per hour uh, for chambermaids. It's not that they're not willing to pay, and that goes for way staff, server staff, back of house, kitchens, you know, they're having a real struggle getting people back to work. And even with the kids in Niagara Falls, all the students work and any kid who grew up here knows you paid for your college, your university, everybody worked in tourism and hospitality at some point in their life, directly or indirectly. And even there, they're struggling because kids don't know, are they going back to university? Is it going to be virtual again? They're, it's it's so up in the air, nobody knows. But the, what I can tell you on the ground, what's happening, 
they're struggling to get enough people to come and work. And that's been one of the holdbacks now for businesses opening up. Jim Diodati with us, Mayor of Niagara Falls, as Ontario enters the next step of reopening. Niagara Falls is ready. Jim, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks. You too, Scott.